Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. This time, happy to uh, ask our brother Don Pell to come up and give us the message that the Lord has laid on his heart today. Brother Don. Good morning. One of the things that I don't like to have happen to me is to be at a quandary between one or two messages that I've been given some serious thought to. But our brother this morning stimulated my thinking, and I think I'm perhaps on the right track. He talked about contending for the faith. Here we find in First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter number four, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. That reminds us that this preaching of the word requires an evangel. Have you ever thought of yourself as an evangel? An evangel comes from a Greek word. It means a messenger who brings good news. Wouldn't it be nice to be an evangelist? A messenger who brings good news. The angel who announced the birth of Christ was an evangel. You will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The multitude of heavenly hosts who confirmed Christ's birth were evangels. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. There's a Christmas carol that captures this idea. I, we shout to the lovely evangel they bring. And we greet in his cradle our Savior and King. That leads us to the idea of one who then is an evangelical Christian. Evangelical. According to the Cambridge Dictionary... This is a person who believes that the teaching of the Bible and persuading other people to join him or her is extremely important. An evangel Christian is one who believes that it is his responsibility and privilege to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Paul preaches. You remember Paul's gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the good news. When Paul came to Corinth, he preached, he came preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ would tell us immediately that this is a redemptive gospel. It's not a social gospel. It's a redemptive gospel. It's a redemptive message. As a matter of fact, Peter expresses it this way in his epistle, knowing that you were not redeemed, there's that word, redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, some of you know, and I was talking to some of the folks this morning about this, many of you have experienced the deadly or the really nasty disease called COVID or COVID-19. And uh, I know many of you have encountered this. I encountered it in a really big way, as many of you know. Uh, 
a blood clot in one lung and double pneumonia, and very, very close to death. Spending about six days in the hospital, and the first one or two days, I was told it was probably just a little bit nip and tuck. Now, having never experienced anything like that, I'm grateful for the fact that I retained my sense of being. I retained my faculties, I could communicate, and my thought processes seemed to be real clear. Had I been put on a ventilator, that would have been a different story. But by the grace of God, I escaped that. But here's what happened to me, and it was an amazing thing. I wanted so desperately to define my faith. I wanted so desperately to put it in some kind of a chronological order that would make complete, total sense. And I thought to myself, if I were going to explain to someone right now what I believe and how I believe it, how would I do that? What what comes first? What comes second? When comes third? What comes fourth? Is there a is there a, a logic to it? Is there a chronology that you could kind of follow right down in line? And these things just came flooding into me. Now I was hoping, wishing that I could have had a little pen and paper. I'd just start jotting them down, you know, as they came to me, but I couldn't do that. I could reflecting back on my study, I tried to recapture some of the thoughts that I had and the way I sequenced this. Let's start with God. It's a good place to start, don't you think? Salvation always, always begins with God. First of all, how about recognizing that there is an existence of an eternal being? Does he exist? And if he does exist, are men accountable to him? Is it just a matter that you live this life and you die and that's the end of it? And there's no one to whom you are accountable? Or indeed, is there a being called God and does he exist and does he reckon with men? Now, here's the problem. I was thinking this, you know, without a revelation, think about this. Without a revelation from God, man would be clueless. He would just be plain clueless. He would have to do what men do now. They speculate. They speculate about creation. They speculate about heaven. They speculate about eternity. Apart from a revelation of God, they wouldn't have a clue about heaven or hell or even how the world came into being. But we can see through creation itself that it likely didn't just happen. It's too precise. It's too revealing. And so you might, as I have, the psalmist came flooding into my mind. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. And then Paul builds an argument in the book of Romans. He writes, for since the creation of this the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead. So they're without an excuse. So there's that revelation right there. Then, thank the Lord, he went a step further. He started revealing things through his written word. And that reminds us what Paul wrote to Timothy, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it has profit. 
But here's the really remarkable thing about this word. Not only is it terribly instructive to us and it reveals God to us, but it is powerful. It is powerful. That's, that's a, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Think of that kind of power. The Word of God informs us that man absolutely is accountable to his Creator. Solomon ponders in his Ecclesiastes the end of life. And here's what he writes. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed. I was wondering about that. Was my little silver cord of life suddenly going to be loosed? Or the golden bowl is broken? Or the pitcher shattered at the fountain? Close your eyes in death. Or the wheel broken at the well? Then what happens? The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. Then what happens? Then what happens? Solomon had answer. He said, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time there for every purpose and for every single work. And the writer of Hebrews said, it's appointed unto men once to die. That's not the end. After this, the judgment. And so God then takes it a step even further. He reveals himself through his son. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that you even think about paying him a visit? And the word of God reminds us that God had revealed himself in times past by the fathers and the prophets. But then he revealed himself by the one who came flesh and blood. He's appointed heir of all things through whom he made the worlds. Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So what about this God? Let's thought, Well, let's just ponder this for a minute. If there is such a being, what is he like? What do we really know about God? A holy, righteous God and his son, Jesus Christ, are sinless, sinless, perfect. Moses and the children of Israel declared, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? This morning we sang what? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, fearful in praises, doing wonders. As Isaiah the prophet wrote, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Think about this. This is the amazing part of it. The God of the universe dwells in that high and holy place and also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit. 
There's a little song about God being big enough to rule the universe, small enough to dwell within my heart. I suggest to you, he's big enough to rule the universe and even bigger to dwell in my heart. Think about that for a minute. The one who can see the whole great picture can actually reach down in every one of those creatures that he completely knows about. Wow. <laughs> you know, Greg, you know, tried to get your arms around that. I was thinking there in my thought process, wow, that is a phenomenal God that we worship. The angelic beings, remember what they cried? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Peter, who walked and talked with Jesus, here's what he writes. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then further, speaking of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews said, He's holy, He's harmless, He's undefiled, He's suffered from sinners, and He's become higher than the heavens. So here's this awesome, fearful, holy, righteous, almighty God. But then John in his epistle says, that same creature is love. God is love. Not only God loved, but he loved because he is love. That's part of his holy nature. Love. John writes, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Well, there you have it, right? All the world needs is what? Love, sweet love. You got a holy God. He's love. He comes down. He son, his son comes to planet Earth, and he teaches a lot of great things. He demonstrates God's love. All you got to do is love just as he loved, and you'll have a great relationship with God. True or false? I'm sorry to say it's false. And why is that? Well, here's something that the Bible talks about men don't want to admit. It's a little word called S-I-N, sin. Ah, what a problem. What does God have to say about that? You see, the good news starts with bad news, regrettably. The good news starts with bad news. What's the bad news? <laughs> You're all sin. You come short. Haven't met God's standard. You're not holy as God is. You were once alienated and even enemies in your mind by wicked works that he's reconciled. Breaking God's law is sin. If you don't want to know what sin is, well, not just mistakes, not just misunderstandings, they're sin. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. We think about those standards summarized in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear fault witness. You shall not covet. But here's the interesting thing. God's holy law reveals sin. 
to the Romans, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except the law for what I have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So what about man? Is he a sinner? Well, regrettably, he inherited that sin from Adam's sinful nature. Paul reminds us that just through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and it spread to all men, they've all sinned. And the one evidence of sin, James describes it. Here's he says about it. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bring forth sin, and sin when it is finished, brings forth death. L-S-D. Lust, sin, death. Now man has a conscience. He knows the difference between good and evil. And James says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So the Word of God just describes sin and explains it in some very practical ways. Man's heart is sinful. Jeremiah knew about that. He looked at Israel and their backslidden state, and he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And man, the sinner, regrettably is now under eternal condemnation. Now, people joke and say, you know, have you one of those people who have been saved? Saved from what? You know, you can be saved from a variety of things. You can be saved from an automobile accident. You can be saved from this and saved from that. Saved from condemnation. That's what we've been saved from. Saved from condemnation. Therefore, though in one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. So that simply means that failure to believe in Jesus Christ is sin. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's his dilemma. But now we come to the good part of the news. The good part of the news, and that is simply this. The evangelist says, you know, God has a provision. God has a marvelous provision. And people often ask, and I've been asked this question, and I'm sure you have. It would certainly make one ponder. Why would a God who is love pronounce eternal condemnation upon mankind? Why in the world would he do that? Well, the scripture makes it clear that this holy, righteous, almighty God cannot tolerate sin. That's the thing that separates man from God. Now, the good news. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Isn't that great? God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. He's provided a way for a sinful man to be made right with God. Divine justice demands a sacrifice that would satisfy this holy, righteous God. He's provided that sinless sacrifice. God's divine justice, when he sent his son to 
planet Earth to be crucified. And John says, in so doing, he himself is the propitiation or that satisfaction of divine justice for our sins, but not just for ours only, but for the entire world. And this is love, John writes, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be that propitiation, that satisfaction of divine justice for our sins. So by shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary, Christ provided a means by which God can redeem sinners, bring them back to himself. And along with that redemption comes this forgiveness. Try to put these in order. What comes first? What comes second? Sometimes we get a little confused. We now have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. No longer we are enemies of God. Having believed, we're no more longer an enemy. Paul in his book to the writing to the Romans wrote, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A sinner no longer needs to fear God's condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. He who believes in him, John writes, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So now comes that next issue, and that is faith. Faith. Now, how does that come into play? Faith. Believing in something or someone. A legitimate faith needs to have a legitimate source. It begins with conviction. You know, the evangel can preach and preach and preach, and God will honor his word. God will encourage that person. But something has to happen first. The Holy Spirit must come and convict men of sin because he has failed to believe, of righteousness because he needs a righteous standing before a holy God, and of judgment because Jesus Christ bore that judgment and the devil has been conquered. And then comes repentance, simply a change in direction. A sinner facing condemnation, now a forgiven sinner with eternal life. And Peter explains it this way. So the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. But as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Changing one's direction. And then we find confession, proclaiming Jesus as Lord. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved from that condemnation. Why? Because with your heart you believe and with a mouth you confess. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from from the deeds of a law. And this suggests to us another concept that we have, and that is an imputed righteousness. 
People will often say, you know, you think you're better than the rest of us. You're better than we. Well, the truth of the matter is we're not better than anybody else. We're simply better off than others who have not received Christ because we have an imputed righteousness. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And Paul to the Philippians says, And be found in him not having my own righteousness is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So now comes a new relationship. But as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. And with that new relationship comes a new hope for our citizenship, Paul writes to the Galatian believers, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly or vile, it's often said in some translations, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Uh, When you come nigh unto death, you are brought keenly aware of the fact that your body is corruptible. As we age, we realize that that's absolutely the truth, but it comes crashing down when you begin to realize that soon it wouldn't take much for that silver cord to simply break. And so, lying there, I just wanted to have that all firmly fixed in my mind. So I'm going to conclude with a question. This is a good one, too, and I hope this is for your encouragement. What does the evangel do when he shares in good news and he's scoffed at and ridiculed? What does he do? What does the evangel do when he's ignored? You know, What does the evangel do when people politely smile and go their way? What does the evangel do, and our brother alluded to this this morning, when he experiences persecution and hostility? What does he do? What does the evangel do when he feels like evil is overtaking society? And the evil is just totally, completely overcoming the good. Well, here's what the evangel does. He does what Paul told Timothy to do. He continues to faithfully proclaim the good news, trusting the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction. That's what the evangel does. He preaches the word, instant In season, out of season, he proclaims the good news, trusting that God will bring about the conviction to bring souls to himself. You see, an evangel can't save. Some people say, I was saved by by Billy Graham. Not a good way to put it, is it? I was saved by Billy Graham. You might even say, through the ministry of Billy Graham, Billy Graham never saved a soul. 
neither did Billy Sunday. Neither did Charles Wesley, for that matter. So first of all, I, th- I find this is an encouragement, by the way, the fact that I can't save. <laughs> In the world could I be to save anybody? I put my pants on the same way everybody else does. Only Jesus saves. Secondly, God will honor your labor. Yeah, that's right. You may be scoffed at, and you may be set aside, and you may think that I'm just talking into the wind, and nothing's going to come out of this, but, you know, when they were looking forward to the return of the Lord, you know what Paul said to the believers so they wouldn't get discouraged? He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Ah, contending for the faith, right, brother? Contending for the faith. Unmovable, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Ah, isn't this the great part? Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Lord pays attention to the evangel. And the Lord will honor his message. And, of course, here's the third thing. And we already talked about this. It's powerful. It's powerful. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? It's the powerful. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And, you know, I've got to tell you this. It's a mystery to me to this day. Maybe that's why I struggled, so I wanted to just get it all crystallized in my thoughts and have it come together, because to think that someone who's just an outrageous anti-Christ person can have one's life changed by this simple message to me is mind-boggling. It's just plain mind-boggling. Now, salvation is so simple, and yet it's also complex, isn't it? It's also complex. We can deliver a simple message, and yet we can rejoice in the complexity of it. And as I was laying there in my hospital bed, I wanted to try to try to my best to try to unravel it just a little bit, try to get it in my mind fixed in some chronological order and way of... Now, I wouldn't have probably 30 minutes to talk to somebody about that. There are a lot of different ways to share the gospel. But these are things that we must have firmly and fixed in our mind as we consider the claims of Christ. I hope my experience has been a real blessing to your heart. I hope you never experienced the same thing. But, uh, you know, someday the silver cord will break on it. Someday the silver cord will break. And then I shall see him, as Manny Crosby so well put it, face to face. But be not discouraged. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful for the gospel, the good news. My, what good news it is. And we pray that you'll give us the ability, the empowerment, the conscience of mind as we think about our faith, contend for our faith, grasp at things that are unseen, that seem mystical to us, miraculous to us. I pray that you really enable us to be faithful in preaching the word, resting on you, your Holy Spirit, to convict the hearts and minds of men. 
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.